Well, good morning. Half-hearted, but I'll take it. It's good to be with you this morning, and it is fun to see former members here back, and relatives, and some guests, and all kinds of people. Uh, my name's Dave Dorst. I'm the associate pastor. If I have never met you before, or haven't seen you in a long time, I'd love to talk to you afterwards. There is a sermon outline. If you like to take notes and kind of know where we're going, you can pull that out. Paul Tripp is an author. He tells the story in one of his books that I read recently about the story of his son Justin came to him one day and ran up with excitement told him, when I grow up, Daddy, I want to be a lion. Apparently his mom had been reading about animals of Africa, and he decided he was going to be the king of the jungle. That's who he chose. So Paul, the, the dad, he's a pastor and theologian and counselor, author. He sort of, uh, he launches into this little lesson about uh, biblical anthropology and the doctrine of creation, and the worth of a human being in God's eyes. Did I mention his son was four years old? And so he, he sort of realized that his son was getting fidgety, and so he, he wrapped it up and said, do you understand what daddy's trying to say to you? I sure do, dad. When I grow up, I want to be a giraffe. Justin was a little confused about what he wanted to be, changed. He, he thought he wanted to be one thing, but when it looked like that wouldn't happen, he, he settled on something else, and maybe that wasn't much better. And we get a flavor of that when we get to our passage in the book of Corinthians, because at one time, the Corinthians, they were wrestling with what, they knew that their identity had been one thing. They had looked and acted and lived a certain way. But then their fundamental identity changed, and they were looking to figure out what they would look like now, who they would be, what was expected of them. So let's continue our study of 1 Corinthians. In chapter 7, Verses 17 through 24. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Once was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. 
Christ. Do not become slaves of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let there let him remain with God. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Lord God, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. Open and illuminate our minds that we may purely and perfectly understand your word, that our lives may be conformed to what we've understood, to the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. In the last few weeks, if you've been here, or if you haven't, we've been working through chapters 5 through 7 of 1 Corinthians, and we've seen Paul dealing with the confused thinking of the Corinthians, particularly in the area of sex. And for the next few weeks in passages, Paul will continue to deal uh, with subjects touching on the family, such as singleness, marriage, divorce. But he diverges from those discussions uh, in today's passage. And on first read, it may not seem like this passage has a lot to say to us, right? Circumcision is, is just a health thing. It's kind of between like your parents and the doctor when you're born. And slavery is an issue in the sense that it still casts a great shadow over our world. I mean, there's a horrific amount of human slavery and human trafficking worldwide, But as far as being something I think that most of us deal with day to day, it it seems remote. So you might think that this passage has very little to say to us, but let's look closely. I think there's a lot to say. The first thing that we see that we, uh, in reading the section, is that it repeats the main idea three times. Right up front, comes back to it in the middle, and then it closes. Anytime in the scriptures say things three times, it's pretty important. It's not hard to figure out the theme. Remain in the same condition. So we'll tease out what that means. But let's look at, I kind of pulled those verses out if you've got your outline or if you're just looking at your Bible. We're just going to skip 17 to 20 to 24. So 17 Verse 17 says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. And then, a little different but similar, uh, verse 20, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. And then 24, So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Now, many of us grew up as Christians. I know a lot of people have a similar testimony to me. We were in church as soon as we were old enough and and sort of knew Christian ways. And we didn't have dramatic conversions and never had to wrestle with the changes that our new life, our new spiritual lives in Christ brought. But many people here and Many that you know have come to faith in Christ later in life. And and certainly all of the early Christians that Paul was addressing would have been converts, right? The early church. 
before Christianity were either Jewish, Gentile, pagan. Uh, they were all coming in. It was all new to them. And they find themselves trying to figure out how to change things about their old lives. I mean, certainly they know they, they need to stop sinning and, and running after the things of the flesh that they used to have to run after. And, and the New Testament uh, gives us all kinds of encouragements on how to start thinking and acting, right? Have the mind of Christ. Set your mind on heavenly things. Seek holiness and not impurity. Put away all anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. There's tons of passages like that, right? But then there's some things that aren't quite so explicit. And there's questions about how we're, we should change. And, and so things like, do we give up all our old music and only listen to worship music? Do you have to change all of your political views? Do you have to stop hanging out with all your old friends? Do you need to get a new job, find a new place to live? And it seems that with this passage, Paul wants to slow everybody down a little bit and remind them that when they come to faith in Christ, it's not about having a new life. So much it is, it is making your old life new. You don't have to change everything. In fact, it would be best if you stayed where you are doing the things that you were doing before assuming you can still do them with a Christian conscience. So the theme is there. Let's see how this applies then. He, he gives us to two areas. And the areas that I see are the outer appearance and vocation. So let's start with the first one, verses 18 and 19. Uh, sort of as we apply it, we... we we're answering the question, should I change my outer appearance? Let me read those verses again. It was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised. Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. To the Jews, circumcision was a really big deal. And for good reason, according to the Old Testament, any man who was not circumcised was outside of God's covenant and his family by association. So Jewish males were circumcised as babies, which marked them, literally marked them out as part of God's chosen people. I realize that it's still strange to our ears because it's not part of our culture. Uh, but this practice changed with the New Testament, with the New Covenant, right? The old covenant signs of circumcision and Passover, which both required the shedding of blood, were no longer the signs. They were replaced by baptism and the Lord's Supper. So the bottom line is that what we do in the act of baptizing an infant or an adult today is basically what circumcision did back in the Old Testament. It outwardly shows 
that that person is in a covenant relationship with God, is part of the covenant community of believers. So, if someone converted to Christianity, there was no need to undergo circumcision. Read the book of Galatians if you want to see how difficult this idea was for the early church's Jewish converts. And also see how insistent Paul was that they not force circumcision. Because he said, this bounds you to the law again. And you should be free. Now, for many Gentiles, circumcision was a matter of scorn. In case you wondered why Paul wrote that phrase in verse 18, uh, do not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Apparently, some Jewish youth would look to get surgically reversed to fit in with the wider culture. I didn't know that until I read some commentaries about that. But Paul says, circumcision no longer matters. Whether you do or you don't, don't worry about it. It's really now just a a health thing. It no longer has that spiritual significance. Compare verse 19 with Galatians 5, 6. I've written both of them in the outline. 19 is, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Galatians 5, 6 For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Paul emphasizes a little differently, obedience, faith, but the point is the same. The outward appearance does not matter. The heart of obedience that responds to God in faith and love is what matters. And so there's some good application here for when someone comes to faith in Christ because they have a a new problem, something they got to figure out. How do I fit in with this new culture, these believers, this church, whatever church they're going to? What do I need to do? What do I need to look like? And and so the first thing they probably need to figure out is, is what translation of the Bible to get. You know, the King James seems like it's the most holy, but maybe I should figure out what my Sunday school class is or if there's an official translation, the ESV. So they got that down. Then they have to figure out what the acceptable level of like secular entertainment is because, you know, there's some churches where you can't watch any movies, can't listen to any secular uh, music. And then there's... Are there churches that are like, hey, listen to anything you want? And uh, hopefully a lot like ours that are like, it's not forbidden, but use caution, discernment. So they got to figure out how to navigate those kind of things. And then comes the dress code. Which is, I'm sure is a lot harder for ladies than for men, right? Guys, we just sort of figure out whether it's a collared shirt or not, and... Slacks or jeans, a lot harder. All the choices on your wardrobe, ladies. I remember going to a conference hosted by a uh, pretty fundamentalist, charismatic church. You remember? (laughs) And uh, 
So Gail and Phoebe, the music team, went with me, and I remember them remarking because, like, all the guys were really fashionable, like GQ fashionable, nice haircuts and stuff. And then they were saying, and the ladies look like they're trying out for Little House on the Prairie. What, what's the deal here? And I think it just, it just was a little off-putting that there was this double standard that if women dressed stylishly that it would be immodest or too sexy or something. I don't know. And yet the guys could look as sharp as they wanted. Um, so I, I just hope that we've gotten past some dress code issues. Um, I don't think anybody's still saying, hey, we need to wear your best when you go to worship the Lord because we'd all be wearing tuxedos and wet, uh, you know, dress as nice as we could. And I think that would distract us just as much as if we were wearing ripped jeans and midriffs. Um, so I think beyond basic issues of modesty, I hope it doesn't matter that much how we dress at church. I mean, if you're up front, maybe spruce it up a little bit. But <laughs> otherwise, obviously don't need a tie or a jacket. But uh, otherwise, feel the freedom in Christ to wear what you would wear in a social setting. Probably not what you mow the lawn in, but, you know. We don't need a special church wardrobe. I don't know if you've talked to unbelievers about coming to church. I mean, probably they're, I remember we talked to one kid about just coming to youth group, and he said, am I good enough? No, none of us are, but come on. Yeah, we're, it's just youth group. But, um, <laughs> but it, the first thing I want to know is, gosh, am I going to be accepted there? And so a big concern for them is, what do I need to dress like? I haven't gotten that question a bunch. I hope that we don't make that a barrier to people. I hope we don't make it an entrance requirement. So they figure that out. And um, I'm going to raise something. I'm just going to go there. Tattoos. I I, I see like a real strong parallel with the circumcision idea. That that, um, Without really getting into the uh, theology of whether tattoos are a good idea or not or whether Leviticus still applies. Um, But here's the question. If someone comes in and they become a Christian, should they like remove their old tattoos? Or maybe conversely, well, now they need a big cross tattoo to declare their allegiance there. And I think, I think Paul would say, I I am putting words in his mouth. But I think in the spirit of this passage, I think he would say, it doesn't really matter. Don't worry about them. You don't need to get them removed. You don't need to get a new one. Don't worry about them. They're simply external things. Worry about whether you love God and are following him in obedience and truth. And I think the most important thing in this area before we move on to the next is to remind us that the church, the members of the church, we should bend over backwards to include new people, to draw them in, to make them feel home and safe. No matter what they're wearing, no matter what 
whether they fit in with how they act. You know, they may curse. They may smoke. They may have a different political view than you. I hope we would get past judging them and putting up barriers to them being drawn into deep fellowship in the church. Some of these are going to be areas of Christian freedom that they may not change. Others may just be maturity issues that will improve as, as they draw in and grow in Christ. But either way, it's on us to love them, to accept the people coming into this church, no matter what they look like, no matter how they act. All right, Paul moves on to a different question now in verses 21 through 23. Should I change my vocation? Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Now, slavery in Paul's day wasn't necessarily race-based slavery like it was in this country. Certainly some slaves had very difficult lives and, and circumstances. We can't pretend they, they weren't. Um, some were forced into it because of war or because they had committed crimes. That was their punishment. But others were skilled professionals, often earning good salaries, and they could eventually buy their freedom. Some people used slavery, or what we would call indentured servitude, to step up from an impoverished background and hope to make their way to a higher status, maybe perhaps leaving their children uh, as free-born, full Roman citizens. As David Strain notes, Paul had nothing positive at all to say about slavery, He's not endorsing slavery. In verse 21, notice he even encourages slaves to take freedom at every opportunity. But he doesn't want anyone to think that the radical spiritual liberation the gospel has brought into their lives must also mean that slaves should rise up and revolt against their masters. That would have undoubtedly spelled disaster for the early church. It would have been a misunderstanding of the implications of the gospel. So Paul says, stay where you are, but live knowing the paradox that you may not be free outwardly, but you are free inwardly, which is far better. And I think the best way for us to apply this is in the realm of our work, our vocation. Unless your job is dishonoring to God, it is perfectly acceptable, even preferable, Paul seems to be arguing, that you stay in the job you're already at. You should seek to know how God has called you. Christians should remain as they are in relationships and services unless God assigns them to a new task. Conversion isn't the signal to leave your occupation and 
seek out something more spiritual. Every job can become Christian work when you realize that the purpose of your life is to honor, serve, and speak for Christ. You can serve him wherever he's placed you. I think of the great example, example of William Wilberforce, a politician in England in the late 18th and early 19th century, who when he started getting serious about his faith, thought that maybe he should leave his position in politics to pursue ministry. Luckily, his friends talked him out of it, saying that the Lord could accomplish great things through him exactly where he was. And because Wilberforce stayed and fought against slavery, and I'm sure many of you know, England eventually abolished the slave trade and made all slavery illegal in large part due to his actions. Our own elder, James Murphy, I asked him if I could share this. There you are. Um, He was confronted with a similar question when he came to faith in Christ as a Marine. Should I leave the Marines and go pursue ministry, go to seminary, or should I stay? It seemed like the, the right and spiritual thing to do, to leave But he was told, and I think he came to see, that uh, he'd be able to influence many men where he was that the church couldn't reach. I talk to students who tell me that they've been strongly encouraged to go into the ministry. They really want to work in government or do something else. I say, do it. Pursue it. If God's wired you for that, if he's given you a passion for that, you got to try it. We don't need a bunch of pastors who wish they were doing something else. I think there's a phrase that uh, might be a paraphrase of what Paul is trying to say here. And you've heard it. Bloom where you're planted. Right? If you're a surgeon and you're good at it and you like it, please stay there. We need you there. If you're a teacher, if you're a business person, whatever it is, God can use you where you are. We had a whole Sunday school class for a semester kind of looking at the implications of our godly callings and our work. It was called, it was based on a book called The Call. So I could go on and on about this topic, but I'll just summarize it a little bit. But all believers should ask what does Christ have to do with my vocation? And how does the gospel shape my sense and practice of calling? And I think we need to avoid on the one extreme the idea that we, what we do for work completely defines who we are as the most important thing in life. As well as the other extreme that work is not that big a deal. It's just a secular way to make money separate from our spiritual lives, right? Now, the Bible teaches that all work is inherently valuable. Not only does God intend for work to be pleasurable to the one who does it, but also a way to care for and cultivate the earth and influence others around us for the common good. Now, there may, might be a time 
when a person comes to faith in Christ and feels called to be a pastor, missionary, just do something different because of their new spiritual life. I mean, James still might go to seminary and pastoral ministry. Paul's not prohibiting that. But I think it's going to be the exception to the rule. Don't automatically assume that becoming a Christian means you have to quit your job or change it. Verse 23, let's zero in on that. You were bought with a price. We've seen this phrase recently in 1 Corinthians. Chapter 6, Paul uses it to remind the Corinthians to pursue holiness and not sexual immorality. You were bought with a price, therefore honor God with your bodies. And here, Paul uses that phrase again. This time is, I think, a play on words. Uh, Just a way to move from the idea that slaves were owned and paid for by men to our condition in the Lord who paid for us. Not to enslave us, but to set us free. Human beings don't recognize that in their natural state, they are enslaved. People think that they're free because when you become an adult, you don't have to do what your parents tell you. You're free. You get to choose your own actions. You get to spend your money however you want. You get to move and travel and whatever you feel like. You're free, right? Well, in our responsive reading, we read Jesus' words in John 8. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The reality is what they don't realize is that they are enslaved, unable to freely choose their actions. They have a will, but it is not free. They are under the curse and control of their sinful natures. And they're responsible to pay the penalty for those who commit sins in the sight of a holy God, which is eternal death. But God does not want us to be slaves to sin. Sin grieves him. Sin offends him. He takes it so seriously that as he is the perfect judge, he must judge it and punish it. But thankfully for us, he came up with a way to still punish sin, but to free us from its penalty and from its enslaving grip. Because God said someone else could take that penalty in your place. Couldn't just be anyone. Couldn't be someone with sin that they had to atone for their own sin. It had to be someone perfect. And that person was God himself, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus who became fully man, even as he continued being fully God when he came to this earth. Lived a perfect life, gave himself up on a cross to pay the penalty for our sin. Jesus' death freed us 
in every sense of the word for those that he calls his children. God couldn't just overlook our sin. He had to pay a price, and that price was the death of his son. You were bought with a price. So now live in the glorious freedom that the gospel brings. If the son has set you free, you are free indeed. And all, all those who recognize that said, amen. Lord God, thank you for this text. Thank you that Paul was such a careful, loving church planter that even when he left Corinth, that he stayed in touch and he answered their questions. And everything that they wanted to know, he guided them in, despite their uh, many people having an agenda against him. So thank you that we have this record in chapter 7 and answering all these questions. And thank you that Paul addresses these things. And that... Uh, while it seemed more spiritual and maybe the thing to do to quit their job and, and go and find something else, something more spiritual, Paul reminds them that it's not their outward state or the job that they do that defines them. It is that they were bought with Jesus' blood. It's that God had come to rescue them, to confer salvation on them, to adopt them into his family. And so their hearts of gratitude, of obedience and faith and loving him was so much more important than the outward signs And that they're continuing to be salt, they're actually starting in many ways to be salt and light where they worked. That their coworkers, that their families, that their neighbors would see this change in them. And yet, they didn't abandon them, they didn't walk away, they stayed. And they showed what a changed, renewed heart in Jesus looks like. And we have the same questions today, Lord. We pray that we would continue to be salt and light wherever you've placed us. We pray that you would bloom, we would bloom where you've planted us. Take the gospel into the hard places. that we wouldn't focus on the external things of how we dress or how long our hair is or whatever our hang-ups are. God, teach us to care about the things that you care about because you look at the heart. Thank you for your love and your salvation. Teach us, Lord, in Jesus' name.